So the, the role of the church is not to transform society. The Arco gas station in Compton stealing thousands of dollars in merchandise while a sideshow blocks a nearby intersection. The role of the church is to bring people to Christ that they will be transformed and that will change the way people interact in society. Woo woo! Welcome to Bible Theory, homie. Taking the church to the streets, homie. So with today, we're going to go ahead and talk about the church from a Presbyterian point of view. I know my whole show is about the church, so why not make one episode about the church from a Presbyterian perspective? But anyways, if you have not already, go ahead and hit that like and subscribe button. Hit that little bell for notifications as well. Three little things you could go ahead and do and leave a comment. Let me know if this is your first time joining Bible Theory down below. All right. So with that, I got a guest and we're going to go ahead and introduce them. For those who don't know um, you, Pastor Ryan, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is uh, Ryan Beasy. I'm the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, where I've been serving in the PCA uh, at this congregation for uh, about, well, it'll be five years in November. Before that, I was pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Winona, Mississippi. And before that, I was an intern at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. So only can serve at First Churches. Got uh, three kids at home uh, that my wife, Anne, has uh, given me. Dabney, uh, Thornwell, and Charlotte are their names. And we have two too many dogs dogs at home. So that's the that's the brief bio of Ryan Beasy. Nice. So you're familiar with the South. Is the, is the tea sweeter down there? Is, is that true? It is definitely sweeter. I started making sweet tea after my wife and I were married and I realized how much sugar was in it and I had to stop. I, it, it is so good. But I, you know, put in two cups of sugar and it's like, well, it's not quite sweet enough. And then you put in a third and you realize that's a lot of sugar. So oh, two cups. <laughs> Man, is it true that you're the moderator of your session? I am the moderator of my session. All right. I'll resist from calling you Mr. Moderator. <laughs> <laughs> If you can, just take us, you know, through a 30-foot a cliff. Give us an overview uh, presentation of, you know, what is the church? A lot of people think about the church in many different ways. A lot of people, I believe, have an association, a relationship with the church. You know, you hear a lot of statistics. People be like, I used to go to church, you know, or I grew up in the church, fill in the blank. So yeah. I feel like a lot of people have a relationship or had had a relationship, right? Pastor, uh, why don't you just tell us what is the church? We could get so we could get it right. Yeah, well, you know, it depends on what you mean by church. Uh, you know, a church is a building. A church is people. A church is an assembly. And you know, the Greek word where we get church, ecclesia, uh, means it means congregation or assembly. And so it's used in the Book of Acts. Uh, one of the great chapters uh, to look at to see the what the church is is Acts seven, where uh, Stephen, as he's giving his his great uh, sermon. Now I'm not sure if he was exhorting. Was he a deacon? Was he a, a teaching elder? 
ruling out our, whatever he was doing, that sermon, that uh, exhortation in Acts chapter 7, he uses the word ecclesia to refer to congregation, the company of God's people under the old covenant, which is also the same word that they are using to refer to the company of God's people under the new covenant with the apostles and elders. So it is a congregation. Now that same word is also used of secular assemblies uh, in, in the book of Acts. The word church, where the word we get church from in the Greek could just mean assembly, uh, but that's usually not how people mean it uh, today. They usually have something specific in mind. They're not usually just referring to the building. Our catechism describes uh, the visible church as the society made up of all such in all ages and places of the world who profess the true religion and their children. Bannerman uh, gives five definitions of the church, referring in his, in his uh, book, The Church of Christ, five ways the word church is used in that sacred sense, right? Not just the, the sense of, you know, the public assembly. The church signifies, says Banner, the whole body of the faithful, whether in heaven or on earth, who have been or shall be spiritually united to their Savior. So that's the universal church, but we also use church in a more local sense, right? Uh, this group of people here who meet on the Lord's Day morning and Lord's Day evening in Fort Oglethorpe, that is a church. And Bannerman uh, has uh, has a definition for that, but also church is used in the scripture of a region. Uh, you think of Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, a presbytery, which we would call it in, in the peace a group of churches who have come uh, together to hold one another accountable. But also church is used in the scripture, particularly Matthew 18, to refer to the leadership of the church. When uh, Jesus says, you know, you've, you've got a, a disagreement, an offense that your brother has committed against you, and if he, he won't agree with you and he won't agree with two other brothers, then you're to tell it to the church. Well, Jesus is, of course, not meaning just tell it to everybody in synagogue, tell it to the leadership, the elders. That's how the Jews uh, would have understood uh, that. When people talk about, you know, young folks leaving the church, what are they meaning? Well, they're probably meaning that visible institution, right? Uh, people who profess the true religion and their children. You know, but of course, there's a, a richer, fuller, understanding of the church, which is everyone who has been, shall be, and is uh, united to Christ uh, by his spirit uh, through faith and repentance. Like uh, I think Dr. Master said in a previous episode, you got to define your terms, right? Right, because when you're talking, you know, people on the street, sometimes they have preconceived notions of what you mean. So I think it's very helpful to be like, here's what I mean, X, Y, Z, and this is how I use the word. This is mm -hmm. how they use the word. This is how it's commonly, historically, all these things. So like when people hear the word, like, okay, now we know exactly what you mean. So there's a yeah. universal, there's a local, there's a regional. I, I think there's even, also the leadership. Right, right. Just the leadership. The I feel like I feel like those are different types of scopes yeah. or jurisdictions of the yeah. church, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. But when it, someone it, says, I'm going to church, well, what they mean is the, that local body of believers who meet Lord's Day morning and Lord's Day evening uh, for worship, to hear the word preached, to sing praise to God, to see the word in the word, in, in the sacraments. That's usually what is meant by the church when people use it, I would think. Right. Like on the typical average Joe, they will say like, I'm going to church. Basically, they may not, they may not like have that deep understanding, like I guess the invisible yeah. universe and all that stuff. But in their mind, they're just going to a place called the church, yeah. right? But, but I think it's important for us to understand the distinction between the visible and the invisible church, you know, with your example that, well, you've got young people leaving the church. Well, uh, does that mean the promise of God has failed? Were they once part of the church and then not? Were they once united to Christ and then not? Well, what does that mean? And so that's why Reformed Christians have understood a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. So visible and invisible means, it doesn't mean like I'm visible and invisible, kind of like an invisible man and an invisible, yeah. invisible right? It doesn't mean that, right? 
Right. Okay. The, the, there's this universal church, which is, you know, you, you, you can't really know for certain uh, who's a part of the invisible church, uh, yet you're going to have some pretty good indications, right? They're going to be the people gathering for worship. They're going to be the people who are growing in grace uh, and uniting to one another, growing in love for the body, right? There at the end of, of John 13, what are the what's the that mark of discipleship Jesus gives? Love for the brethren. But, you know, there's another aspect to the church in, is that, that it is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Westminster Confession uh, says. And so, now, is it the kingdom of God in its fullest sense? No, but it is the the kingdom of God. And so everyone who desires to be saved must come into the kingdom of God, must come into the church, right? That's why we'll sometimes say outside of the church, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. Right. And there's a lot of qualifiers there, ordinary possibility of salvation. Okay. So there's no salvation outside of the church. So what? Ordinarily. Ordinarily. There's some exceptions, I guess. I get, you know, I, I'll hate to put God in the box and say, yeah, God mm. cannot save. I will say, yeah, there, there's some exceptions, definitely. But for ordinarily, there's, there's definitely not. Let me give you an example. Um, Bertie Kona is a PCA missionary in Albania, and I, I maybe you know him, uh, but he he tells this story about I th I think I heard the story a long time ago, so I'm probably going to get some of the details wrong. If you're listening to this, Bertie, I'm sorry. The main point of the story was uh, there's this guy he met in Albania who was a reformed Christian. Now, Albania was a communist country, and this guy got a Bible because somebody was flying an airplane over Albania and dropping Bibles in Albania, you know, under the radar, and so on. And so forth. And so Bertie Kona goes over there, founds a, a congregation, and he meets this guy. He says, you believe what I, you're reformed. You believe what I, and, and you know, Bertie Kona's like, well, how did you become reformed? Well, I read Romans. I read, I read the New Testament. So that guy, though, living in Albania, where there was no church because it was a communist country, there, there were so few Christians, they weren't able to gather. So in a sense, he was outside the church, but as soon as he was able, he comes in. He joins the body of Christ. So that would be an example of, yeah, not ordinarily, uh, is that the case, but ordinarily, once you are, you united by faith through the Holy Spirit to Christ, to his body, you're going to seek out that body of believers uh, for worship, for service, for mm -hmm. fellowship. So that's what I think ordinarily means. As a Presbyterian, how would you break down, you know, this question right here where people are saying, okay, I, I, I'm starting to understand. I'm starting to get a get, you know, hang on here to this um, conversation. Let's just say there's people out there who have no clue what we're talking about here. So as a Presbyterian pastor, how would you answer the question by saying, you know, if someone says, what do I need to do then to be in the church? So we're, we're talking about that body of believers, right? Not the building, right? which, you know, some people, you know, we've had people who uh, in our congregation will, will worship for years and they think that they're members and you're not a member just by showing up. Now, that's the way it was in the Church of England, or is in the Church of England. Anglican churches, you know, you attend, at least it used to be, a few times, and you are, this is your parish now. Uh, but to join a Presbyterian church is not automatic uh, in uh, the fullest sense. Now, this this uh, child who uh, will be baptizing, God willing, soon, she's born a member by virtue of being born to one and actually two believing parents. So you can be born into the church, but the people of whom you're speaking, I don't think they're born into the church. They're uh, those who are far off. So what do they need to do uh, to be saved? Well, in one sense, acknowledge that they can do nothing to save themselves. They would, uh, in in the in a Presbyterian church, they'd come to the uh, meet with the elders, and the elders would ask them, you know, why should you? Why should we admit you to this congregation? What makes you worthy of joining First Presbyterian Church in Fort Oglethorpe? And hopefully, the person's answer is something like, nothing. I'm not worthy to belong uh, to the body of Christ, but 
my God and my Savior has promised me uh, that whosoever will may come, that if you repent and believe uh, that I will forgive you for your sins, you can be part of my body. You can be uh, forgiven. So meeting with the elders, talking about uh, your Christian experience, how you came to know that you're a sinner, how you came uh, to see, and not just know that you're a sinner, but also that Christ is your Savior. Uh, So it would be a meeting with the elders, and the elders uh, would receive a person into church membership, and that is where, in a Presbyterian system, a person becomes a church member. Sometimes in in PCA churches, people will get it a little bit confused. They'll think when a person is introduced to the congregation on a Lord's Day morning or evening that that's when they joined the church. Actually, when they joined the church was in that little room with, you know, four or five other guys there, and the session receives uh, new members uh, into the church. So once they're presented to the congregation, they're already members. We've had people who have been members for weeks before they were presented to the congregation because either they were traveling or they wanted to be able to join when their their kids could be present or their parents could be uh, present. Maybe there's a baptism or something like that. I think a lot of people would understand that process and, you know, those processes are, a lot of people would be like, well, I don't see that in the Bible. People are like, blah, 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 blah. I, but I think, you know, a lot of those things are probably there for, for a reason. Um, you know, you can't just, well, what, First John 4, 1 says, what, to test the spirits mm-hmm. and everybody's of God just because they're, they're saying, I believe Jesus and I want to join. Like, you got to protect the sheep. You got to, like, make sure, like, are, are they really? Well, and uh, also remember the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And remember the injunctions that are given at the end of, or in Hebrews 13, at the end of that letter, uh, to honor and to respect your leaders yeah. because they are watching over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It's not even something that had to be stated in the New Testament. It's so implicit there that there are groups of people who are accountable to and other elders and elders who are accountable for those groups of people that you know who your leaders are, right? Uh, consider your leaders and the outcome of their faith. You know, a person who just strolls into church doesn't necessarily have any relationship with that church. Now, hopefully, they're going to be invited to join, encouraged to join, and uh, to make that public profession of faith, uh, which is so vital, right? Whoever uh, confesses Jesus is Lord. Uh, that's, that's an important part of the Christian life, to publicly profess Christ is my Lord and uh, my Savior. Now, for those children that want to profess faith, what what is that like? Let, let's say the parent that you just told this to, like, okay, I get it. What about my daughter who's eight years old? What about my six-year-old son? What about them? Because yeah, you the, said that they're included, so what, what about them? Yeah, they would be uh, what we would call non-communing members, uh, that everybody in the household uh, is a member who's uh, either professes faith or the child of one who professes faith. And so when that child comes to an age where he or she is asking uh, spiritual questions, is able, you know, the kind of the standard my wife and I have for our kids that when we're going to start pushing them more, not forcefully, but intensely, that they need to make a profession of faith is when they can sit through a service without taking, uh, without drawing, uh, without needing to go for a snack, uh, without having to get up for the bathroom regularly. So, you know, sometime between 9, 10, maybe 8, 12 years old, I I think it would be appropriate to ask those same questions to a child. Now, you're going to expect a child who's 8 or 12 or or 14 to give answers that are fundamentally the same, but maybe not as deep as you would a 35-year-old or a 70-year-old who comes for church membership. But it is, at its core, it's the same process, right? No, no, it makes sense. Because if somebody, if a, if a six-year-old is saying, what's the Lord's table, daddy? That I would consider that a spiritual question. I'd be like, that's yeah. a great question. You know, let me let me tell you, you know, and then over the course of a few weeks, I, like I could disciple my, my daughter yeah. and that question, you know what I mean? And that could be the start yes, of absolutely. that journey for her, you know what I mean? Yeah, 
And it's not something that we want to, to rush, uh, because right. God is faithful to his covenant. It's not about how good uh, we are or how early we come, but it is something that, you know, we want to make sure that this person is really able to understand and discern the Lord's body rightly. No, absolutely. I want to take a, a step back here where you said something about, you said J, you said Jacob, you said Esau, you said uh, Ishmael. You're dropping these Old Testament names, and there's a lot of evangelicals who might be listening who may not have this consistency, you know, as, you know, many Reformed people do, especially Presbyterians. How would you explain you know, this answer to, to this question of, is the church only in the New Testament? Because many believers in, in America would say, yes, everybody in the Old Testament are technically not church people. I call it the the history channel answer. The, the church started, you know, when Jesus died, you know, or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> man, like, I really hate that. Personally, I really hate that answer. But how will you answer that? Yeah, I would again go back to that sermon uh, that uh, Stephen preaches in Acts 7 as just a, as, as a class example and see how he uses the same word for church to describe uh, the Israelites, the Old Testament people of God, as they're using in Acts to describe that New Testament group of people who are meeting uh, uh, for word, fellowship, prayer, breaking of bread, uh, Acts 2.42 and 2.46. So the, Stephen, you know, one of the first deacons who's preaching, so maybe he's an elder at that point, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe they didn't follow the PCA Book of Church Order, I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe uh, they start writing it. That's right, that's, that's right. so big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he saw, he, he used the same term. And so with understanding how context works, and, and just as I said earlier, yes, there's a lot of ways the word ecclesia is used in the scripture, but given the context, he seemed to see a fundamental and organic unity between that group of people uh, that uh, to whom he was ordained in service in Acts 6 with Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon. Uh, so, yeah, I would say it, it and, and of course, the Reformation Fathers, they referred to that uh, group of people in the Old Testament as the Hebrew Church. The, uh, the the people in the Old Testament were saved the same way we are. How were they saved? By faith in God's Word. You know, what was the promise to Abraham? That through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be, will be blessed. What was the promise to Adam and Eve? That in your seed, I will undo everything that the serpent has done, right? A seed shall rise and crush the head of the serpent. Well, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed has come, the offspring has come. And so we are saved the same way, by faith in God's word of promise. What was his word of promise? That he will crush the head of the serpent, that he will bring blessing. Well, how does that blessing come? Because the seed, the offspring, was crushed, was bruised, was, was afflicted, smitten, stricken, and afflicted. It was the will of God uh, was to curse his son, right? He was hanged on a tree so that we who deserve the curse could be ransomed from our sins. And that's what, that's what Adam and Eve were waiting for. Uh, you know, Eve, uh, when she when Cain is born, she names him Cain, of course, which is, here he is, he has arrived, this is it. You know, she's expecting Cain to be the one who fulfills that promise, who's going to crush uh, the head of, of the serpent. Well, of course, Cain breaks in his brother's skull instead. Um, it's a different type of crushing. It's a different type of crushing, uh, yeah, with it, with it, with uh, in the field. But so they're, they're hoping, they're expecting God to do something. That's their only hope. You know, that's Abraham's hope. That's Jacob's 
worships hope. That's our hope. And, and you know, that's why it's so important Christians now sing the psalm so that we can see. You know, we're singing psal- you know, psalms that are 5,000 years old, right? Uh, psalm 90, written by uh, Moses. You know, the Exodus was, what was that, 1446 uh, BC, give or take. Uh, so we're singing a, a psalm that's 3,500 years old. Uh, the Psalms of David, 3,000-year-old hymns that the church the church has sung together for 3,000 years with this same hope. Now, Psalm 22, one of the clearest expositions of the crucifixion in, in all the scripture. Again, Isaiah 53, but you know, if we sing Psalm 22 together, we're singing of Christ. Uh, we're singing of his of the hope that our Hebrew ancestors had, spiritual ancestors. You know, my, my physical ancestors are a bunch of German pagans who ran around naked on the Baltic Sea, which is, you know, just, just stupid. <laughs> hey, the Aztecs are not that far off. You know, if we look at our physical ancestors, there's no hope there. But if we look at our spiritual ancestors, what do we see but a people who have waited upon the Lord imperfectly with halting and faltering faith, but fundamentally they looked to God to do something to fulfill his promise. So yeah, it's the same organization, the same body in the old covenant and the new. Word. We're talking about joining the church. I guess we're talking about membership, you know, all these things. And there's always this question pops up where people are like, man, is membership even biblical? Like joining the church. Isn't that very cultish? Like, what is this? You know, some kind of cult. You you only join cults or Sam's Club. You don't join churches. So, like, how would you respond to that type of apologetic that's popular out there? Yeah, it's very, especially in this individualistic culture, church membership uh, goes back uh, to Abraham and and particularly uh, to Moses, right? They they knew who was in, uh, they knew who was out, they did a census. Uh, They had elders over, that's where we get uh, Presbyterian. Now, Presbyterianism government goes all the way back to Exodus 4 and 5 uh, at at the very latest, but uh, certainly Exodus, uh, what is it, 18, uh, when Moses is just overwhelmed and his father-in-law shows up and he says, Moses, this isn't good. You need to have other elders to come alongside you and handle these, these easy cases. Here's these the PCA moder- book church order. Why don't you read this? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Jethro brings it. Uh, he's, he's got his, the historic polity of the PCA. Um, and so so there, there's clearly who's in and who's out. And you know, someone might push back and say, well, yeah, everybody who was in was a Jew, was a Hebrew. They knew who was in or who was out. Oh, no. And if you read the Exodus account, there is a mixed multitude that goes with them. You know, when I was teaching in a uh, an ostensibly Christian school in Winona, Mississippi, and I was a, it was a segregationist academy. So, you know, it, it was, but they put Christian, one of my elders said, well, they put Christian on the name uh, so that they get a tax deduction, but it's a bunch of segregationists there. And so when I, when I, I taught through Exodus uh, to these uh, kids who were in school uh, and not in the public school uh, because not of not because of Christian convictions, but because of a wrong-headed, uh, sinful idea of segregation. And I and I and I showed them that verse. This was a mixed multitude, mixed ethnicity, mixed race. I mean, it's all one race; it's the human race, but mixed ethnicity. I got so much pushback on that point uh, from these kids because, in their mind, the church is everybody. Everybody looks like me in church. But why, why is that an important point uh, to your question? Well, if you have these people who are not Hebrews, who are part of the people of God from day one uh, after Passover, clearly you have to know, well, clearly, you know, ethnicity isn't the determining factor in belonging to the people of God there in the Old Testament. Well, what about in the New Testament? Well, Acts 2, a few other times in the beginning of Acts, it'll say, and so many were added to their number. Well, what number? How do you know who's added if you don't have 
a membership. Likewise, the uh, uh, Paul, as he writes to the Romans and the, the Corinthians, will speak about membership in a body. And then again, I would I would bring up what I what I mentioned earlier, as as the apostle is wrapping up his letter to the Hebrews, that you have leaders, and you know who those leaders are, and those leaders are responsible to give account for your souls. Well, if you don't have church membership, if you don't have some list, if you don't have an idea of who is in and who is out, at least of the visible church, how can I give account? Am I am I responsible to give account for the soul of every Everybody who happens to walk into First Presbyterian Church on any given Sunday. Now, in, in a sense, yes, right? I'm responsible to preach the word faithfully. But there's a different level of responsibility for those who have committed, who have covenanted uh, in, in vows of church membership to belong to this local expression of uh, the, the body of Christ, the church of our Lord. Definitely. The Lord <laughs> has his own sheep and those who know him know his voice, right? Yeah. Church polity, um, how would you respond to this question? Also, another notion that's popular in the world, people out there are saying, okay, well, uh, okay, I could kind of see how church membership matters now, okay, but who died and made this guy the senior pastor? Like, who who died? And isn't that like what Reformation is all about? Like, get rid of Rome and the popery and all this stuff? And what's up with all these presbyteries and elders? Like, they're always in your business. Like, <laughs> as a Presbyterian, how will you um, answer that question to does church polity really matter? Yeah, I, w- I would say polity does matter. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a Polity Matters podcast that uh, people can could listen to, but we see that church polity is biblical, all right? Going back again to Jethro in, in Exodus 18, uh, they're setting up the polity for the assembly, for the ec- the Septuagint would translate it ecclesia, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the church. Uh, but then again, in Acts 10, Peter goes and he shares the gospel with Gentiles, with Cornelius. And in Acts 11, he comes back and he tells them what has happened. And there's an objection. People don't like it. You've gone and you've eaten with Gentiles? With those people? Uh, And and he says, well... He has to give an account. Yeah. He has to give an account to somebody. And after he gives an account, he tells me, look, I was preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit came down. Who was I to withhold water from baptizing these people? And you know what happens? The objections cease. And then again, in especially Acts 15, the first general assembly, there is an issue. Judaizers, we call them these people who have not understood the way the gospel fulfills the old covenant law. They've come down to Antioch and they've said, look, it's all right. Gentiles can, can come to Jesus. Uh, they can be saved, but we still need to keep the kosher laws. And, you know, these ham and cheese sandwiches that these Gentiles like, that's a big no-no. Bacon, real ice cream after meals, nope, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be mixing dairy and meat. We still need to keep all these kosher laws, is what they're saying. And Paul is saying, no, we need to have table fellowship with Gentiles because that doesn't matter anymore. These ceremonial laws don't matter. Well, there's a controversy, and what do they do? They go up to Jerusalem, and we see a debate. We see James is presiding, uh, we see a case being presented. We see, uh, by implication, there's a vote taken, and we see the assembly act and deliver a statement, a judgment. Well, what happened there? There was a there was polity. Polity happened, and then of course, you know, the, the every Presbyterian's life verse there at the end of one Corinthians 14: "Let all things be done decently and in order." 
well, how do you do things decently in an order? Well, the light of nature tells us you have to have some organizing principle for how it's done. Now, the, the, uh, the opposite of that would be Quakerism, where you go to a meeting and everybody just sits there until somebody feels like the spirit moves. And what happens if two people feel the spirit are moving at the same time, or maybe it's the Taco Bell they had before they came? I, you know, who, who can really tell? But if you have polity, you know what's going to happen. And you know, to your question, well, how, who died and made me senior pastor? Well, the congregation, sensing the Lord's call, voted uh, to elect me to be senior pastor or pastor uh, here. So we see that polity is biblical, and we see polity in Acts 6, uh, where uh, the apostles and elders tell the church, you guys elect, set up, uh, choose seven men, and we will ordain them uh, to this service of, of waiting tables, to this ministry. So we see polity uh, in the scripture. Church polity, to answer your, your question briefly, church polity matters because it's biblical. How would you respond to say to somebody who might be listening to like, okay, yeah, I get it. Okay, it might matter. But like it, Presbyterianism is like not the best way. Like it's not the greatest thing on earth. It's not the the reform world. It's not the only way. This is the way. Like, how would you, how would you respond to that kind of thought process? I, w- I would, again, <laughs> I would go to the book of Acts, and I would go uh, uh, to the pastoral epistles, uh, where you see uh, the words presbytery, right? Uh, Timothy, hands are laid on him, words are spoken over him in the council of elders. Now, that's how the, the English Standard Version translates it, but if you, if you look at the Greek, it's presbytery, because the word presbyter is the Greek word for elder, so a council of elders. So we have groups of elders being appointed, being ordained and installed. Uh, the apostle tells uh, uh, tells Timothy or, or Titus to uh, go appoint elders in every city, every town. Uh, when Paul is being transported back to, to in, in Acts 20, I'm blanking on whether he's going to or from Jerusalem at the moment, but in Acts 20, uh, he doesn't want to go all the way to Ephesus, so he summons the Ephesian elders to him. And you know, he doesn't summon the whole church, he summons the Ephesian elders. He's been pastor there for a couple of years in Ephesus, and he gives them a charge, right, to watch out, to guard the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, he warns them, fierce wolves are going to come in, even from among yourselves. Oh, uh, we see the church being set up with elders, just as we saw the old covenant church having elders. So why is Presbyterianism uh, biblical? Why is it the best form of government? Well, because it's the biblical form of government. There again in Acts 15, when there was a problem in Antioch, they didn't just settle it in the Antioch church. They brought representatives from all the churches, and they went up together, and they settled it as a group together in assembly or in synod, which of course is taken from the Greek word meaning to come uh, together. So when you look at uh, at the at the scripture, we see Presbyterian polity at least outlined. And one of the things uh, that I think helps our cause is that you don't see it just in one place. Right? If there was just one verse about elders, we would probably say, well, that's not really clear. But because there are several verses sprinkled throughout, right? when Paul's writing letters to churches, uh, the letters, uh, the letter to the Philippians is to the elders and deacons. Other letters are to the elders. Uh, so we see this understanding that there are elders and that the elders are keeping watch over the flock of God as those who will give an account because Christ purchased this flock with his own blood. Let's go ahead and answer these two questions because these two questions will pr- pretty much determine, you know, how we answered, how we how we are going to answer all these other questions here. 
Number one, what role does the church play in society? Because it, I feel like there's a the blurred line here. I feel like there's a lot of wishy-washy evangelicals that say, oh, no, zero, zero roles. And then every time I read, like, for example, like like some of the reformers, like John Knox, I'm like, I'm not sure if he would agree with that. That, you know, that question is uh, not easily answered, and there's not widespread agreement on the role, as, as you just highlighted. Uh, so the church is a spiritual organization. Thornwell called it, and, and, and Bannerman. And, and Thornwell says this, the church is exclusively a spiritual organization and possesses none but spiritual power. It's not the business of the church to build asylums for the blind and the insane. So that sounds like, okay, the church has no role in society. But he continues, the church deals with men men as men, as fallen sinners in need of salvation, not as citizens of the commonwealth or as philanthropists or members of society. And so then he talks about the mission of the church. So you, you, you read uh, Thornwell first, you think, well, okay, so the church really doesn't have a role. Uh-uh. Her mission is to bring men to the cross, to reconcile them to God through the blood of the Lamb, to imbue them with the spirit of the divine master, and then send them forth to perform their social duties, to manage society, to perform the functions that pertain to their social and civil relations. So the church has a huge role in society. But that role in society is, as our Book of Church Order uh, says, ministerial and declarative. I think a great illustration of this was given by the late Harry Reader when he was talking about the influence of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. He, he, he talked about, you know, a number of adoption agencies and legal protection and anti-abortion pro-life organizations, prison ministries, all sorts of, of do-gooder organizations there in Birmingham and throughout Alabama. And he said, you know what, all of those were either founded by Briarwood Church members or Briarwood Church has, has had a significant role in their organization since the beginning. It's not what Briarwood Church does, right? It's not that Briarwood Church is going and advocating for this or that policy. It is the Briarwood Church members are working in their civil and social relations to transform uh, the society there in Birmingham, Alabama. And Birmingham, Alabama has been massively changed over the last 50 years, in no small part because of what the Lord has done uh, through the saints at Briarwood. And so the, the role of the church is not to transform society. The role of the church is to bring people to Christ that they will be transformed, and that will change the way people interact in in society, and we see that we, we see that throughout history. Yeah, I definitely see you know the hospitals being created because Christians naturally just care for the sick. They want to help yeah. people, you know, the Good Samaritan, all that stuff. I definitely see that. With that being said, what we what would be your you know markers of a healthy church? If you want to just give us some, and I would I would say that the markers of of a healthy church are exactly what uh, our uh, Westminster Confession of Faith uh, says in uh, chapter. 25, the pure preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and uh, biblical worship, all right, the, the purity of, of worship. It's Westminster 25, uh, paragraph 4. Uh, so those would be the three marks of, of a healthy church, worship, discipline, preaching, according to the scripture. And and so you, and as our, our confession of faith says, as we confess as Presbyterians, you're going to have more or less pure churches, right? Some churches are going to do those well, and other churches are going to do those less well, and some churches are going to do those so poorly, they're not true churches at all, but synagogues of Satan. Straight up. So, <laughs> I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios here, and we're going to go ahead and break them down. Uh, you know what I mean? So, as a pastor, how would you answer this question if somebody comes up to you and says, I have a question. How do I even know if I'm in the woke church? How would I know? <laughs> well, what I would say is, you'll know. 
<laughs> right? You know, woke theology. It just it hits you in the in in the forehead. You know, it, it it's 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 just there. You will know. Uh, and that's not, what do you mean? I'll know. Well, one of the signs will be is that your Christ isn't talked about very often, at least in his office as offices as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Christ, the gospel is not proclaimed. Politics is proclaimed. You know, we had a, a situation you know here at, at First Pres a few years ago where people were wanting uh, me to start preaching about how bad the police are and and how you know the the, the white church needs to repent of its past sins and 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 I said, well, no, I'm going to preach about Christ and how He's redeemed us from our sins. Uh, so politics would be uh, would be preached from the pulpit, you know, denouncing institutions rather than building up the body of Christ to the ordinary means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. But yeah, you'll you'll know you're in a, in a woke church if if redemption and forgiveness of sins take a back seat or are minimized. And, and, and why do I say it hits you in the head? Because woke theology, woke practical, woke practicology is all about virtue signal. So it's going to be pretty loud and upfront. Got it's it. not subtle. I have a question. Now, what if someone comes up to you and be like, help, my pastor's wife is preaching on Sunday. Well, I'd say, first of all, she can't preach uh, because only those who are lawfully called and ordained are preaching. Now, that's that's a little bit pedantic, but I would say, yeah, that's uh, that's a sign that you're not in a healthy church uh, because preaching is an essential element of worship. And so the church can't be a pure church if they're not exercising worship biblically. And if they're not, and then if you have uh, a woman who is usurping the pulpit, well, that means church discipline isn't being done, that she should be, re- she should be barred from the the Lord's table because of that, and whoever let her in there, you know, should should also be facing uh, discipline. So, if your pastor's wife is preaching on Sunday, uh, I would say it's time to look for a, a church where you can have the right preaching, right administration of the sacraments, and and right worship, biblical worship. What if they come back and like, wow, that sounds very harsh. Like that sounds like you're against women. I would say uh, it's not that we're against women. I don't make these rules up. Uh, these are from the Scripture, and. You know, when I when I talk to ladies in our churches, uh, one of the things uh, that they'll say is, "We like uh, that that God that the men fulfill their God given callings because then they don't expect us to do everything." You know, that's I, I was reared in the mainline Lutheran church, and who was doing everything? It was the women. Why? Because the men weren't around. The men weren't doing anything. But in, in a biblically ordered church, the men are going to step up and lead, and they're going to serve. So that, that's another reason I'd say you need to find a different church. Uh, this is this is about uh, the, the order that God has established in his church. And that's something also to remember that we're not judging. We're just applying the judgments that Christ has given in the church. And he's the king and head of the church. This isn't my church, right? Uh, first church in, in Fort Oglethorpe isn't Ryan Beasley's church. It's Christ's church. And we're, we're so thankful that we're accountable to him, because when we're accountable to him, that frees us from Ryan Beasy's opinions. Uh, it, Christ's opinions, Christ's desires are what rule in the church. Amen. Am I understanding your ridiculous question? What should I do if my church locks down again, if there's another pandemic? Yeah, and you know, we're even seeing, you know, headlines that COVID's coming back in September and October, and we're going to have masks mandate. You know, I, I would say if your church locks down again because of something like COVID, it's time to find another another place to worship. Because again, the word ecclesia, you break it down, ek, uh, it means called out ones. 
the ones who are called out. So you, <laughs> you can't have a, you can't have virtual church by definition. A vir- church is a gathering of people to assemble, to congregate. That's what the word congregation means anyway, even in English. So yeah, I, I would say you need to, you need to find new leadership. Uh, you now, if if you're sick, obviously stay home. But you know that's always been the case, right? If, my poor wife. We at the beginning of 2020, both of our kids got chicken pox, but they got it, or one of them got it. Then a week or two later, the other one got it, and so she was staying home with them while they had chicken pox. And then, yeah, we did shut down for COVID for too long. It was the wrong decision. You know, I I published an article about my errors in that. But I think what we learned about that is worship is important, right? God loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. What does that mean? What is Zion? Well, Zion is uh, the temple. Uh, Zion is where the old covenant church gathered for corporate worship, festival worship. God loves those. Why does God love those gates? Because that's where his people are assembled. Sure. Does he love the dwelling places of Jacob? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But he loves it when they gather together in his name even more. I have another question, Captain. You know, someone comes up to you and says, Pastor, my other pastor, you know, thinks that my whiteness or fill in the blank is oppressive to others. And I really feel bad about that. And, I, you know, he, he made us do this. He's thinking about doing this. What do you think I should do? I, I would say run. Run! Questions bring more questions. Okay, what if someone comes up to you and says, help, my church wants to borrow my big old Millennium Falcon <laughs> for ser- for Sunday service? Um, I- I'd say, I'm surprised they don't want to borrow it for their Saturday night service too. Uh, but yeah, that that's just silly. And again, that's not a biblically ordered, you know, when we bring silliness into the worship of God. Now, should the worship of God be so oppressively dignified that no one can, can follow it? Well, no. But the worship of God should not use the forms of the world uh, to be relevant to society. That uh, when you come into worship, if you're an unbeliever, there should be a learning curve uh, for you because you're entering you're entering a different world. When I was high school, I went to uh, my, my parents, I called it nerd camp. My parents sent me to a <laughs> model UN camp. And as part of that, we visited the Japanese embassy. When we stepped in, inside their, the gates of, of their compound, it was different. Uh, it was an outpost of of Japan. When when someone steps into, now, you know, they spoke English and, and they were very accommodating, very welcoming, and so on and so forth. Well, the church should be very accommodating, very welcoming, but it should be different. There should be a, a sense in which an unbeliever says, I don't understand that. That's different. Why did you do that? Why did you do it that way? And then that opens the door to explain it. So it shouldn't be indecipherable, but it should also be different. So when you're, when you're bringing the Millennium Falcon in, when you're, you know, the church goes to the movies, I think was a franchise you could buy and, and, and have that as your, your gimmick to bring people into the door. It's the old adage, what you win them with, you win them to. And so if you win them with silliness and gimmicks, you will have to keep up the silliness and gimmicks. But if you win them with the ordinary means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer, if you win them with bread, wine, water, a psalter, a hymnal, or a psalter hymnal, and if you win them with preaching, you've won them to Christ. And in fact, really, you haven't won them at all. Christ has won them, and he will keep his sheep. Because as you said, his sheep hear his voice, and they know him. So, you know, you, you may not be able to gather as many butts in seats uh, if, if you uh, use the ordinary means of grace, but you'll gather souls and Christ will keep them. Uh, well, one more question. What about this one? Is, uh, this one might be a, a pretty interesting one. It says, you know, a guy comes up to you and says, help, my church down the street wants to discipline me for voting against this abortion bill that we have. Mm. My pastor found out and now he's angry at me. Uh, I, w- I would again, uh, you know, um, what Dr. Thornwell uh, said 
He says the churches are permitted only to declare what God has taught or enjoined in the Word. Are we prepared to say that it is part of Christian obedience to encourage, you know, and he's talking about a specific bill, uh, a specific proposition. Well, no, we can't do that. We can't tell people how to vote. We can teach them the truth, but we can't tell them how to vote. Now, uh, in this country, we have one political party where their platform is basically Romans 1. Uh, it's basically disobedience to parents, fornication, sodomy, unnatural relations. That is their platform. So we should preach against their the undergirding philosophies. But you know, a pastor who wants to discipline a member, who I guess is in the, uh, the local assembly or state assembly, that's beyond uh, the, the purview of of his authority and to vote against a bill that would save human lives i would say run run Closing thoughts. Let's go ahead and bring it back. Anything you want to highlight for us? Anything you want to bring up? Remind us before we end it. Yeah, the, the, the church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the, the people whom he has redeemed with his own blood uh, and their children. The church is the ordinary way uh, by which God saves and sanctifies his people. It is it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the family of God. It's the pillar and buttress of truth. Throughout the scripture, there are these metaphors to help us understand what the church is, these different images and, and ideas, uh, because the church is, is rich. Yeah, there are good churches. There are bad churches. There are mean people in churches. There are nice people in churches. But the reason we have come uh, to church, the reason we love uh, the church is because she is the body and the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must love her. We must be patient with her. We must submit to her. Learn to love the church because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So with that being said, you know, if you found this, you know, whole episode edifying, encouraging, anything like that, you know, go ahead and show your support by simply, you know, getting your phone and throwing me a couple of bucks so I could buy coffee in the morning. That'd be great. And also, if you want to keep warm this winter, go ahead, go over to my store and buy yourself a couple of sweaters because that winter is coming. Winter is coming. So go ahead, copy yourself some. I know I, I sell coffee mugs and stickers just, just in case if you didn't know. Like Biggie Smalls once said, if you don't know, now you know. So there you go. Grace and peace. God bless.